Welcome to episode 23 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian, a writer, and an editor, and I study 20th century American culture and the American space program. Uh, I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. So before we jump into our episode, um, I have a couple housekeeping issues. So the first one is that this month, We are running a science and desire themed series on the website, um, and we've got some um, neat stuff coming up. And so you can find all of the essays uh, throughout the month on our website, ladiescience.com slash essays. And so next month is going to be Lady Science's fifth birthday, not fifth birthday for the podcast, but fifth birthday of Lady Science as a whatever this is and <laughs> media <laughs> empire the word the media empire. media empire <laughs> um so it'll be five years and so we're going to be running a um one-time donation fundraiser throughout that month and we're gonna have a lot of um extra things coming up for it i don't want to give too much away because some of this stuff is um still in the works being planned and then some of it's just kind of special um, that I want to save. Um, so be on the lookout for that. And also, I just want to give some general reminders about rating and reviewing us and subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, the ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts really help us out. It helps us um, reach new listeners. So um, stop what you're doing unless you're driving <laughs> and <laughs> not, not recommended while driving. Um, take just a few minutes to please, um, to please, uh, rate and review us. Um, okay. So enough of that. Um, we're going to get into this episode today. We're going to be talking about sports. So back in July, the Swiss federal Supreme court ruled that the international association of athletic federations had the right to borrow Olympic medal winning track star Caster Semenya from certain track events. Semenya had been in the news for about a decade now, and since she was first subjected to medical examinations by the sports governing body after her gender identity was questioned. It was discovered that Semenya has an intersex condition that causes her to produce higher than average testosterone, and ever since, she has been fighting with the IAAF for the right to compete in women's track events. Uh, All of us have been um, tracking Semenya's story for a while, and uh, this recent decision got us thinking about the history of policing women's bodies in sports, and in particular, uh, how that seems to be affecting and how um, intersex women and how intersex women's bodies are are being policed in sports. 
and we were wondering why these international sports organizations are so obsessed with strictly defining gender and uh, why does it seem like this is an issue mostly for the Olympics and track and field events in particular? And also, have male athletes ever undergone this kind of sex, this kind of sex verification testing to ensure that they are really male? Uh, just as spoiler, um, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, so a little later, we will be talking to Dr. Amira Davis, who is a professor of history, African-American studies, women and gender, women, gender and sexuality studies, all of those things at Penn State. <laughs> all of the lady things. All of them. All the yeah. cool stuff we like. <laughs> she does a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, she um, does. At Penn State. about, And we're going to talk to her about how black women in sports have had their gender policed. But first, we want to talk... Uh, in this episode about the history of sex verification testing in sports um, and how this history kind of led into the Semenya decision. In 1936, Germany hosted the Summer Olympics in Berlin. This was one of the most notorious games in Olympic history. I think we can all figure out why. (laughs) The Nazis were in power in Germany and many countries debated boycotting the Olympics and none of them ended up doing it. Uh, (laughs) But along with bigger controversies about the participation of black and Jewish athletes and questions about whether attending the Olympics gave credence to the Nazi regime, the 1936 Summer Olympics saw the first significant debate over the sex of an Olympic athlete. And that arose from a sports rivalry between two sprinters, Helen Stevens and Stella Walsh. Uh, Just to back up for a second uh, in, in history, though. The, at the first modern Olympic Games in 1896, uh, women were not allowed to participate. Uh, in fact, the founder of the modern games called them a, quote, solemn and periodic exaltation of male athleticism with female applause as its reward. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> just, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, but despite his objections, women did compete in 1900 um, in a limited number of events. Uh, but in the ensuing years, uh, the number of women, women's events grew. And uh, in 1928, women began competing in track and field events like the 100-meter race and the 800-meter race, the high jump, and the discus throw. Uh, it won't surprise any of you to hear that a lot of people, not just the founder of the Olympics, hated the idea of women competing. Really? Weird. I know. Shocking. Uh, this is still the era when many medical experts claimed that vigorous exercise was bad for women's reproductive organs, um, and which I think we've talked about on podcasts before. Episode um, 8. Your uterus will yes, fall out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> It'll um, explode or fall out. There's just so just many things that can go wrong so in there. So many things. So you just gotta, like, stay still and, and hope for the best. Um... <laughs> On top of that, there's just, like, the general cultural idea that people thought that women who participated in sports were mannish and unladylike and generally a danger to society for not conforming to appropriate gender roles. Um, so suspicion of women competing at the Olympics is is really baked in from the beginning uh, because of when it started. And the, these were, you know, women were coming to the Olympics and performing amazing athletic feats uh, and representing their country. And it's this really, like, weird hyper-masculine space um, 
remember the Olympics were founded on ideas of idealized uh, Greek and Roman athletes. Um, so there's all this weird, like, masculine nationalist stuff attached to the Olympics. So I feel like that is part of what makes people extra uncomfortable with uh, women um, participating in them. Well, so that brings us to uh, Stella Walsh and Helen Stevens. Walsh uh, actually grew up in the United States, um, but she competed with the Polish national team at the 1932 Olympic Games, where she won the gold medal, the gold medal in the 100-meter dash. Um, and she returned to Poland a national hero and went on to win nine gold medals at the championship of Warsaw. Uh, but because we can't have nice things, uh, people on the press started expressing skepticism about Walsh's abilities. So while she was never formally accused of being a man, news outlets and sports commentators were quick to point out that she had masculine features and that she was just too talented to be a woman. So at the 1936 Berlin Summer Olympics, the very, very fraught 1936 Berlin Summer Olympics, Walsh competed in the 100-meter dash and she came in second place. The gold medal winner was an 18-year-old American named Helen Stevens. And not only did Stevens narrowly beat Walsh, she also set a new world record at those games. So what happened next has fundamentally changed the way women athletes are policed and categorized in the Olympics. Walsh and Stevens had competed against each other previously, and they already had a decent rivalry going on. Um, and after Stevens beat Walsh in Berlin, a Polish newspaper accused Stevens of being a man, insisting that Walsh would have won if she had competed only against women. <laughs> <clears throat> Further press coverage accused Walsh herself of starting the rumors, and while there is no proof that she did so, she certainly didn't discourage them. And these accusations were severe enough that Stevens was forced to submit to a physical examination to quote-unquote prove that she was a woman. She quote unquote passed, <laughs> but that decision had repercussions that continue to affect international sports uh, for women today. And the story has a fascinating coda to it. Uh, decades later, after Walsh died, uh, her autopsy revealed that she had ambiguous genitalia and therefore that she quite likely had some kind of intersex condition. When the Athletic Congress tried to strip her of her Olympic medals posthumously, Stevens was the one, uh, well, was one of the few people who came to her defense. Uh, but back to 1936, um, following all of this controversy, uh, Avery Brundage, the U.S. Olympic Committee president, um, who was a real piece of work from everything that I read about him, um, requested that a system be established to examine female athletes to ensure that they were, in fact, female. Um, and in the early 1940s, the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, began requiring that countries certify that all women athletes had been examined by doctors and were, quote-unquote, biologically female. Uh, by the 1960s, um, the IOC had taken over those examinations themselves. And that was because of the Cold War. Uh, the Soviet <laughs> Union started competing in the Olympics, and basically no one trusted those damn commies to follow the rules. <laughs> Which, you know, I feel like like some things haven't changed, question mark? Yeah. <laughs> First it's the Nazis, and then it's the commies. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, 
Around the same time, the International Association of Athletic Federations, which is the track and field sports organization that feeds into the Olympics, uh, also began requiring similar examinations of all women who wanted to compete. So at first, these examinations were literal physical examinations of a woman's genitalia by doctors that were chosen by the IOC and the, uh, the IAAF. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, if women refused, they were uh, not allowed to compete. And um, in 1968, the IOC instituted a chromosome test, which theoretically was less humiliating and, of course, more quote-unquote scientific. Um, but even at the time, a number of geneticists objected to instituting these tests, noting that chromosomes are actually a terrible indicator of biological sex. Uh, so I remember learning in high school biology that your chromosomes determine your sex. I'm sure that's what most of us learned. But the truth is that even 50 years ago, scientists didn't think that chromosomes were actually all that good of an indicator of sex. Um, and in fact, many medical researchers weren't sure if there could even be a strict definition of biological sex. So while the majority of people with um, XX chromosomes possess other traits that are associated with being female, and the reverse is true, the majority of people with XY chromosomes have traits that are associated with being male. That's just not universally true. And in fact, it's entirely possible for someone to have XY chromosomes, but otherwise appear and identify as a woman, uh, or for someone to have XX chromosomes and appear or identify as a man. So it's kind of like a shitty test if you're trying to determine, you know, quote-unquote biological sex. So good job, IOC. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, despite these significant problems and what I could assume would be very loud objections from not just the medical community, but the women athletes themselves, beginning in the late 1968 Grenoble Games, the IOC officially began requiring all female athletes to have a chromosome test done before competing. They continued the practice until 1966 Atlanta Olympic Games. 1996. <laughs> the uh, IAAF required chromosome testing until 1992. Um, why then did Semenya come under fire almost a decade later? Um, well, when the IOC and the IAAF stopped chromosome testing every female participant, they left themselves a big loophole basically saying that they could test any athletes that they thought appeared suspiciously masculine. There's something so weird about this where on the one hand you're like, oh, okay, good, they stopped making everyone do it. But then they're just like, but we can also do it whenever we feel like it for, like, random reasons. Sure, and I'm sure there's absolutely no kinds of biases or racism involved in how people are determining who looks too masculine. I'm sure that's not happening no, at all. No, not at all. So since then, the IAAF in particular has continued to expend a lot of energy, quote, catching women who are intersex. Oh my gosh. Um, but they are no longer focused on women who have XY chromosomes. Instead, they have turned their focus on women like Semenya, who have higher than normal levels of testosterone. 
Uh, so in 2018, the IAAF released a new policy regarding um, intersex female athletes. Um, interestingly, the policy only applies to a handful of track and field events, uh, which are deemed to be most affected by testosterone levels. <laughs> um, though, again, like the reasoning behind that has also been questioned by medical experts. Um, but it basically states that if a woman's testosterone level is over a certain threshold, um, then she must medically lower her testosterone level uh, below that threshold if she wants to compete. But that's not all. Um, the IAAF does generously provide women two other options. They can choose to compete in male events, or they can compete in a special category just for intersex women, which doesn't currently exist. This is like, this part kind of blows my mind because there's this thing where it's like, well, if there was ever an intersex uh, category, they could do that, even though there is no such thing and that would no. also be absurd. Uh, to make this even more weird, um, the IAAF insists that this is not a gender test. Uh, in their statement about the policy, they say, quote, the regulations exist solely to ensure fair and meaningful competition within the female classification for the benefit of the broad class of female athletes. In no way are they intended as any kind of judgment or on questioning the sex or gender identity of any athlete. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just, uh, how do uh, people determine then uh, which athletes are presenting as suspiciously masculine if it's not about gender and gender presentation? And... Yep. Right. Yep, yep, yep. Ugh. Well, yes. and it's also strange because, like, in general, women who play sports aren't going to look like women who don't play sports. So what is, the I guess, the <clears throat> new normal femininity for women who play sports? You know what I mean? Like, this is completely arbitrary measures of femininity and they just keep moving the fucking goalposts right yeah yeah and like there's there's also like language in the IAAF statement about how we we will not you know um accept like be people being policed based on race or sexuality or gender presentation this is really just about the science um but oh god but yeah like again it's but how do you get there? And and when you look at some of these cases, um, obviously there hasn't been a lot since 2018, but in like before 2018, along with Castor Semenya, the cases of women getting flagged for this, you see language about, oh, they're not really a woman. Or like clearly the like human beings on the ground who are doing this are thinking about this as a gender test, even if in sure. language they pretend it's not. Um, There's certainly the idea that also that, well, you can just compete in the uh, male event certainly gives a gender cast to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we will, so we will be sure to link to the entire statement regarding the policy in the show notes so you can all enjoy its, like, absurd backflipping, no, we're not sexist weirdness i almost think that like if if sports continue to push this they're gonna end up like like self-owning really hard when they keep they keep like investigating various like 
bodily substances that actually don't have anything to do with like whether you're a man or a woman like yeah, right. they're just doing all the work for, for us. yeah <laughs> going through right. all of this like junk science for us like thanks i guess well right. and i think like i don't i can't get over just how humiliating so much of this is like first that they like examined this woman's body after she died and looked at her genitalia to say what she is and what she right. is not. And then like subjecting um, any female athlete to these like genital examinations. And then all the stuff that's been said about Castor, like that is so incredibly humiliating. Like women subjected to this examination of their genitals is just it's abhorrent and it's just incredibly humiliating. Yeah, and not to mention, like, they're trying to make Castor, like, perform these, like, do, like hormone replacements and, like, medical procedures yeah. to, like, change her body. Yeah. That, ugh, like, like, yeah, it's, the, like, the whole, grotesque. like, you, it's okay, we have a solution for you, just do a medical, just have a medical procedure or, or like take take medication that is in no way medically necessary. Um, do that thing, uh, right? And then it'll be fine, right? Well, it and it's like icky. there's like targets like high performing women because right. they are so good, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course with Caster, it adds on an issue of race that you have a black woman beating a bunch of white women in track and field in these events and so this is just another way not to just police women's bodies but to police a black woman's body as well yeah and white women uh track athletes have not been shy about saying exactly what they think this is all about like uh, there have been a lot of stories this summer about white women athletes getting beat by uh, black athletes and then just like getting up on the podium and saying like they shouldn't be competing against us because they're like you know they're too strong and too masculine and uh too black yeah. and it's not fair which is just like and they're just like saying it to the press very openly mm-hmm. yeah uh one thing i think is fascinating in all of this uh fascinating in the terrible way um is like you were saying, Layla, about, like, you're already starting from a place of, like, women athletes are not going to look like most women because they're athletes. And I feel like that also brings up the fact that all, like, elite professional and, like, semi-professional athletes don't, like, their bodies are, like, weird monster alien bodies. <laughs> and in, like, various ways. Like, people talk about the fact that, like, Michael Phelps has an absurd arm span and giant feet. And that's part of why he wins uh, swim meet after swim meet and, well, and race and there's after been a, race. A thing with Michael Phelps comparing his case to Castor because right. he doesn't he his body produces more lactic acid. Yes, than yes, that's like it. A quote unquote normal body or average swimmer or whatever. Right. Um, but like no one's has investigated yeah. and submitted him to it or subjected him to any sort of like humiliating like examinations or ordered him to do something that would, you know, make him lactate. That's not <laughs> <laughs> lower the lactic acid yeah, production. That still sounds weird. I don't know. <laughs> but, but you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, it's definitely yeah. not an equal playing field at all. 
Right. Yeah. And no one is saying, no one is saying, uh, is Michael Phelps part fish? Right. <laughs> we must investigate. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, I am because I, frankly, I have questions. <laughs> have you seen that guy's shoulders? Yep. Yep. And not only that, but, like, when these stories come up, it's kind of like, oh, isn't science cool? Aren't bodies weird? Like, it's this kind of, like, fun pop science. Um, this makes him kind of interesting. Uh, and not, like, oh, he's cheating. Right, but if you're Venus or Serena Williams, you're, like, some kind of freak of nature. And, right. like, your your performance, you know, in your sport is... Um, so abnormal that it's not fair or something, you right. know? Right, exactly. Yeah, and this brings me back to the point that what you said earlier, have men had to do any sort of gender or sex testing? No, no, they haven't. Because if they had to undergo examinations of their balls and their penises, then <laughs> I guarantee that test would have lasted maybe five hours. <laughs> yep. It's also it also reveals that like the underlying assumption of the test it, at all is that we associate any kind of high athletic performance yeah with men mm-hmm. and that women who exceed what we expect they're like uh, are abnormal and therefore yeah. we have to make sure that they are not themselves yeah men. no one's yep. testing low performing male athletes to see if they're actually women <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so just to kind of like wrap up on these tests, you know, we we kind of mentioned earlier that like on the surface it seems like things have improved because there is no like uh, universal mandatory test for everybody. Um, so maybe it could seem like an improvement, but it also means that who gets tested is incredibly subjective. Um, and if you want to read some about this, Um, This problem was laid out really thoughtfully in a 2018 article called Impossible Choices, the Inherent Harm of Regulating Women's Testosterone in Sports. Katrina Karkazis and Morgan Carpenter, who are the paper's authors, observed that this kind of regulation encourages and actually even requires the policing of women's bodies, and any woman who isn't feminine enough in appearance or behavior runs the risk of being targeted. So that's a little extra reading on this if you're interested. And uh, in in the show notes, we'll include some some more interesting articles about this, more about Stella Walsh's and um, Helen Stevens's story, which is fascinating. Um, and some more uh, news about some of these more recent incidences of, along with cast, um, like Castor Semenya's, of uh, sort of women getting flagged for being too masculine in uh, especially track and field. All right, well, let's move on to the interview. So now we are excited to welcome Dr. Amira Rose Davis to the podcast. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Dr. Davis is a professor of history, African-American studies, and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Penn State University. And she is also one of the co-hosts of the Burn It All Down podcast, a feminist sports podcast. Woohoo! Uh, yay! Uh, Amira, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
so just to get us started, um, can you just share a little bit of background on kind of what the focus in particular of your research is? Sure. Um, so my research focus really centers on Black girls and women um, historically. So I look at the 20th century, really early in the 20th century, um, 1900s, all the way up to the 21st century. So um, it I study multiple different kinds of sports, different athletic contexts from amateur games to professional sports to Olympians to girls who play sports through the YWCAs. Um, and generally that is like my narrow focus, but if you zoom out a little bit, it's all kind of hitting the intersection of race, gender, sports, and politics. So in general, how was the participation of Black girls and women in sports seen in the middle of the 20th century? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, you had conflicting views. There wasn't kind of a monolith. There wasn't kind of a unanimous decision. But you did have a little bit more progressiveness or openness about the participation of Black girls and women in the mid-20th century. So on one hand, you had arguments about them playing sports that mimicked mainstream arguments, fears that um, being too athletic or competitive would somehow hinder a girl's ability to reproduce later, um, that it was somehow unfeminine, antithetical to being a woman. Um, but then on the other hand, you had sports being uh, kind of identified as a key facet of life for racial uplift. And this included women's sports and girls' sports. And so the ability to harness athletics to prove fit citizenship or to prove um, that African-Americans were equal, were not inferior in any other ways, dates back very far. And it was a tradition that Black girls and women also were a part of. So at the same time as you have somebody like Jack Johnson in the boxing ring proving kind of, uh, or disproving, I should say, race science by not only competing, but winning against white boxers, you have the same kind of celebration being harnessed for Black women, in particularly when they were in international or national competitions versus white women. You could still have the same narrative that Black sports writers really kind of took and ran with um, about how they were ambassadors of the race. They were showcasing the possibilities of the race. And that opened up avenues for participation in schools, in city-based um, organizations like the YW or the Police Athletic League, it opened up um, more permissibility and opportunity there. And so by the time you get to the mid-century, uh, one of the only places you can get an athletic scholarship as a girl is at a Black college, um, mostly located in the South. And so it wasn't just a kind of idea about you know, uh, that it was okay, but it was met with resources and support as well. Were there specific kinds of sports that were maybe seen as more appropriate or more accessible, or was it kind of just like an open field, no pun intended? <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I appreciate your puns. And um, yeah, certainly <laughs> there were... <laughs> Um, certain sports had different connotations and these won't really surprise you because I think they've really endured. So sports that were seen as clubhouse sports um, had a kind of class politics attached to it that was aspirational. So golf, tennis, especially swimming to a lesser extent. Um, golf and tennis really were, I think, the, the crowning sports 
And you saw a lot of class battles within that. In Baltimore, for instance, um, middle-class, aspiring-class Black people petitioned uh, Baltimore to get their own time on the tennis courts. And they said, in part, part of the argument was, if you give us these passes to be on the tennis court at this time and desegregate the court in this way, we'll keep the quote-unquote less desire element of our race off the courts Hmm. at a later time. And so those sports were definitely seen not only as kind of upper class, but they were seen as inherently more feminine. You were wearing tennis whites. You were, and at that at that time, it was a skirt that went all the way down basically to the court. Look at some of the pictures. It's like, how do you even move in that thing? Um, and then sports like um, track and field, basketball were seen as a little less um, feminine, but there was still space for you to compete within those spaces. You just had to go out of your way to continue to perform femininity, I think, over and beyond what you needed to if you were doing something dainty or like tennis. So I wanted to ask about uh, a specific sport because if any opportunity I have to talk about baseball. So <laughs> you wrote a really great piece, a really awesome article about um, the uh, women who joined the Negro Leagues in the 1950s, Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mamie Johnson. Can you just maybe tell us a little bit about how and why these women were able to join these previously all-male teams and just kind of a little bit about that context? Yeah, sure. So um, women, these three women in particular, um, had a love for baseball, Was were playing the game. And um, if you think about women in baseball, you might immediately go to think about a league of their own. Um, and that's actually an okay place to start with them because – people like Mamie actually tried out for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and it was a segregated league. Um, And that's not to say there wasn't a color line. There was uh, Cuban women, for instance, who played in the AGB. I can't do acronyms, the Professional Girls Baseball (laughs) League. Um, There was Cuban women who played, but by all other purposes, it was very much segregated, and the color line was drawn around not letting Black women into the league. But that didn't mean that Black people didn't play baseball. And in fact, one of the earliest professional teams, male or female, that we have at the end of the 1800s was a team called the Dolly Vardens, a Black women's team um, located just outside of Philadelphia in Chester. And so there's a long history about women playing baseball. And Toni Stone, before she made it to the Negro Leagues, played semi-pro on male teams. But how these three women came to be playing in the Negro Leagues is really a story about the cost of integration. Um, and so at the time that Major League Baseball was finally integrating after sports, black sports writers and, and politicians had been leading this charge to integrate Major League Baseball, um, a lot of the men who were playing professional baseball moved over from the Negro Leagues. And the Negro Leagues by the 50s found themselves in a really hard spot. A lot of the money, a lot of the black dollar, a lot of that business that had made them one of the premier institutions in the black community had now shifted over. And so one of the things that um, people reached out for were gate attractions. And in particular, a man named Sid Pollock on the Indianapolis Clowns had an idea to throw together um, a team that included uh, people who were clowning, people who would dance, people who would perform. Think of it kind of like a baseball's versions of the Harlem Globetrotters. And within this mindset, 
uh, he reached out to Tony Stone, who, like I said, was playing semi-pro, who could play, and brought her up. And it was a gate attraction. Tickets certainly sold to see Tony Stone play. In the next year, um, Mamie, as well as Connie Morgan, entered the league as well. And while these women were gate attractions, all of them really could play. And I think the significant thing that I point to was that he reportedly had a gal file and their their presence in the league inspired so many black women to write in and say, give me a tryout, that despite only three of them playing in the league, you actually can see kind of glimpses of a much wider kind of sporting community in, in a desire of black women to play this game. But that's really how they ended up on the team. The, the entrance ticket, if you will, was because of the idea that their presence in a male space would be such a spectacle that it would make people come out to the ballpark to see. And that was a calculation that proved to pay off. Uh, So you mentioned earlier about uh, women athletes performing their femininity uh, in different ways, especially if they're not playing um, sort of more dainty, traditionally feminine uh, sports. And uh, so what are the ways that that sort of played out for Stone, Morgan, and Johnson uh, as when they were in the Negro Leagues? Certainly so. Um, one of the biggest ways was how they were styled off of the field. So um, famously, you might, if you see pictures of them, they're actually wearing pants. And that was a whole standoff. That was one that they won. Tony Stone said, no, I'm not actually playing in a skirt. Like, I won't do it. So she wore full trousers like the men did. But if you also look at promotional pictures that are sent out, there's pictures of her powdering her face. And that image would be circulated accompanied with, you know, uh, a cute headline like, Diamond is the gal's best friend or something, you know, cute and catchy that played up this kind of supposed duality. Um, There's also ways that colorism came into play before uh, Connie Morgan was even on the team. She was included in a photo shoot next to Jackie Robinson aimed at giving legitimacy to the women as players. And the reason she was chosen over Tony Stone was because she was lighter, because her hair was straightened a little bit more. Um, and she looked more conventionally attractive in the uniform. And so that she wasn't even on the team yet. <laughs> and she was kind of drafted into, into this position. Um, you can also look at some of the media that they had around them. There was a spread on Tony Stone in a popular magazine that insisted that she was depicted wearing a dress. There's one picture where she's laying face down um, but bare-chested with her uh, husband rubbing, giving her a back rub, and they go out of their way, not only to, to ensure that she's feminine, but that they're heterosexual as well. And so they're like, here's her husband giving her a rub down. Um, and so you see these, these ways in which um, it's not just the women, but it's the framing of their participation that does the work of insisting that they're feminine, insisting that they're heterosexual. And this is a playbook that was used, as much as I mentioned before about the permissibility of Black girls and women in sports, it didn't come without restrictions. And this, I think, was very familiar, very common. I read about Black track women, for instance, who um, 
you know, had scholarships to run and were in the Pan American Games and the Olympic Games. But famously, one of the best coaches at Temple would say, you know, I want foxes, not oxes. And he would insist mm-hmm. that they powdered their face and straightened their hair before a reporter took a single picture of them. And so while that box Um, While that box for their participation might have been a little bit easier to get into, it was still fairly restrictive in which that it dictated how they had to carry themselves um, off the field as well. Do you see, um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what specifically you see, um, some parallels between your historical work and what Black women in sports are facing today as far as their femininity. Yes, certainly. And so one of the things I say is if the performance that they had to do in the mid-century was to get in the game, I think one of the ways the goalposts have shifted a little bit now is the performance of femininity is really tied to endorsements. Mm. Um, And so you see that there are a number of stories. There's just a story this week about a young um, woman whose bathing suit uh, fit her differently. She was right. curvier and um, was called out, disqualified for being quote quote immodest by the fact that she was wearing the team issued um, bathing suit. And so I think that's definitely a spot where we can still see a policing femininity to be in the game. But largely, the way it manifests is something like um, Serena Williams. Uh, endorsement deals being millions of dollars less than white counterparts that are more stereotypically conventionally beautiful, blonde and blue eyed, um, but haven't couldn't hold a candle to her on the court. Um, young woman who's a back to back gold medalist in boxing. And there's this clip of her in her documentary T-Rex where, you know, she's talking to her marketing team and they're saying, okay, yes, we want to market you. We want to put you on Wheaties boxes, but first and foremost, like we have to soften your image and we want you to stop telling people you like to hit people. And she's like, <laughs> but I'm a boxer. It's boxing. She's exactly. a boxer. That is exactly. her job is to hit people. <laughs> and so you see there, you know, but she also was young and she was, um, darker and she was from Flint. And I think Mm. that those are where some of um, where you can kind of chart the box. Now you saw this in track and field where Lolo Jones commanded a lot of attention um, and a lot of endorsements, a lot of kind of pre-match hype, despite the fact that the black women on her track and field team outperformed her leading up to the Olympics and at the Olympics. And they were very vocal about feeling very upset about the disproportionate coverage. And I think that when you're talking about women's sports, especially in so much of the money to be made is in endorsements, it's not in leagues, it's not in their pay because it's awful. It's terrible. So it is really in the endorsement deals. And so I think that that's one of the areas where you can see the legacies of some of this kind of gender performance come into play. So today in our podcast, we've been talking a lot about uh, sort of the history of sex verification testing Mm -hmm. um, in the IAAF and the Olympics. And uh, of course, there are lots of uh, um, racial components to who gets tested and who doesn't. And, and I'm wondering if you see parallels between uh, 
your the history that you've been talking about and also who's getting flagged today for mm-hmm. uh, testosterone testing by the IAAF and other organizations. Yes, certainly. So I mentioned Coach Temple before. And when I first started doing this research, I will freely admit, and when Coach Temple was alive, um, I would even kind of joke about this with, to him, which is within my history, he kind of took on a villainous role because he was always saying these ridiculous but like also gem of gem quotes to show you know right like what it was required to be a woman in sports um and I used to when I started approaching this project kind of recoil and say what do you mean foxes not oxes like this is terrible um and as I started talking to him and more and reading more about him one of the things I came to realize is how hyper aware he was Um, particularly in the late 60s when sex verification came to the Olympic Games, that his girls, as Black girls, um, Black girls from the South, Black girls from Black schools, Black girls who were winning all the time, were disproportionately targeted for for sex testing and for drug testing. Mm -hmm. And I started to see, read back through some of his interviews where he was like very incessant, like it's saying over and over and over again that they're women, that they had boyfriends, et cetera, et cetera. I started being able to read this back in a way where it was a preemptive response. It was a defense um, because he knew they were being overtested. And so you can see that in the 68 games, leading up to the 68 games, he has an entire... Um, you know, discussion in Jet Magazine about how his girls are ready for the games and ready to prove that they're women and will have no problem passing that test. And he's saying it loud and publicly because he knows the spotlight is disproportionately on them. And I think you can take that and and absolutely look at today's landscape um, and look at the fact that disproportionately black and brown women from the global South are bearing the brunt of these repressive practices from the sport bodies that are trying to crack down on or continuing the long history of, of gender verification and sex verification within um, international sporting events. And it's not a coincidence. Um, I think the idea that these black and brown bodies somehow exist outside of uh, traditional femininity or traditional ways of viewing bodies that they're somehow too big or too curvy, they don't fit. Um, mixed with the fact that people like Castor are dominant uh, invites the spotlight in a way that I can track through history. People have known was coming and then took steps to try to avoid it, even if ultimately, um, unfortunately, in Castor's case, is unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Is there any, and I don't even know what this would really look like, um, uh, that you know of any sort of like activism around this in sports, either from uh, inside or outside? Yeah, I mean, I think that individual athletes really are vocal about it. And then there's some kind of, um, there's not organized pushback, I would say. There's not, um, that's not present. I think it's an area in which um, athletes feel very, hesitant to speak out Mm. really even with you see caster's case there's people who've come and defended her um certainly but there's not a a widespread uh movement and even back in the olympics when they would make people hold gender verification cards after they've 
verified that you were a woman. <laughs> Literally, you should see a card. It's like a driver's license. You carried it around. Even at that time, people would grumble about it, but there wasn't a kind of widespread movement, which is not to say that people haven't raised their voices. They have. It just hasn't kind of coalesced into a into a outburst, a public outburst um, at the same time. But I think that that it's coming to a head now. And hopefully we'll see more mobilization around it outside of individual cases, because um, a lot of what the conversation has turned to today has rested on Castor's shoulders. And that's, I think, people are able to dismiss as an isolated case of targeting, even if they're like, it's targeting as racist and sexist, et cetera. But it's not an isolated case. And it might just be the, the most well-known. And um, she enjoys a lot of support in South Africa, but I think that it's one of those kind of next frontiers where people need to understand that it may not affect you now, but it could affect you tomorrow. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, share that we haven't talked about uh, that you'd love to mention? Yeah, well, I just really wanted to shout out Katrina Carcasis, whose great book, um, uh, Testosterone, an Unauthorized Biography, that she co-wrote with Rebecca Jordan Young, um, is really great to think about testosterone in particular and the way that it's been used to bar people out of sports or just like misconceptions around its use altogether. And um, also Lindsay Piper has a great book called Sex Testing, Gender Policing in Women's Sports. And I really like recommend those two books um, to really dig deep into gender verification in particular in, a, in the athletic world. Um, so I just definitely want to give them a shout out. If you liked our episode today, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of our segments today, you can tweet us at at LadyXScience or use the hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, and we depend entirely on support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladiescience.com slash donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience.